Okay, every year, the American Psychological Association does a, an analysis of the country where they look at anxiety, which captures this concept of uh, what we talked about last week, listless, and this week, restless, as well as other things. And uh, it's been steadily climbing. This is the highest they've measured yet in our country. Okay? What happened? What's going on that our restlessness, especially among the younger generations, is growing? I mean, you're, you live in the same world I do. You see it. You see the dissension, the fractions, the hostility, the argumentation. You see all that, don't you? What's causing this to uh, climb? And what is, when Rob told the story, what would allow somebody to, um, when they pass over the spot where their daughters uh, died, they drowned, what would cause them? What would enable them? What would compel them to sit in a cabin and say, it is well, and write a song, it is well with my soul? How does that happen? Or to listen to Heather and Dan. That was just Heather's story. You should hear Dan's story. He has his own story with cancer. And, and they, could, they could find, in the middle of that, they could find a sense of peace. How does that happen? Our country can't find that peace, but individuals do. The answer is going to be found in uh, Christianity in the Lord Jesus. Back when they had the earthquake in Nepal, some of you may remember, I've traveled there many, many times, and after that, one of the aftershocks, one whole mountain gave way. <clears throat> you may have seen it on CNN. Whole side of a mountain just unannounced collapsed. At the end of that, the bottom of that was a village. So I'm sitting with one of my dear friends, a translator, uh, the wife of my translator, Rajni, and I asked, uh, she, we were talking about it, that's the village she grew up in. So I asked her if um, she knew anybody in the village. She knew them all. That was where her family lived. That fast, they're gone. No survivors. And so she had tears. Sure, there's a lot of pain. But at the same time, she had hope. Why? Why? How did she find hope in Christianity? You know, the, uh, she was raised Hindu. Her whole family converted. She was raised Hindu. And the Hindu answer to this kind of trauma is, uh, and by the way, use trauma appropriately, appropriately, okay? Trauma is not when your parents are mean to you. That's not what trauma is. Okay, somewhere in today's world, we're losing the sight of what this is, and trauma describes a lot of everything. It's trauma when your whole family is killed in one second. That's trauma. But the Hindu answer for that was, uh, well, you deserve it. You're at the bottom of the caste. That's what you deserve. That's how they attempt to deal with this concept of, of the pain and death and all that. But she had converted to Christianity. She was long past that. And so she had this sense of... Um, God is good. How did she get there? And how would it help our church and our country if we could figure this out just a little bit more? You see, we're on a journey. Rob talked about that. Today, we're talking about the journey from being restless to living at peace. How many of you have lied awake at least once, restless? Hopefully, every hand goes up. Let me see. I'm, I'm quite good at it, actually. <laughs> Sometimes I can't tell if it's restlessness or if the Lord is waking me up. I figured out if I wake up and I'm thinking about somebody, then that's the Lord waking me up to pray for him. If I wake up thinking about my problems, that's my own issue. 
So that's kind of how I think about it. So how, does, how do we define it? What is restlessness? And uh, Heather gave a great definition. It's to, the inability to rest or relax as a result of anxiety or boredom. But there's more to it than that. That has the, in, that has the nuance, somebody who's restless, that has the nuance of bringing about a sense of instability, okay? Not dependable. And a lot of our young folks today struggle with that. They're not very dependable. And there's a lot of restlessness. It's matching the rise in this sort of anxiety that leads to it. So where did this come from? Is this innate to human nature? Well, I think it is. You know, when you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, we're now talking about the second sin. The first sin was Adam and Eve. The second one was Cain killed Abel. And so what happened when Cain killed Abel? Here's what God says to him. Um, Verse 10 of chapter 4. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. This goes back to the curse on humanity, the chapter before about the ground. It's not going to make it easy for you to live life, is it? Okay, now we think of that as a curse. I get it. It's a specific action by God because of our sinfulness. But what happens if you think of the curse in terms of blessing? Okay. Can you imagine just for one second what would have happened if Adam and Eve, they sinned against God, lost their innocence, and he said, it's okay, I'll just keep blessing you. They wouldn't need God anymore. Would they? And so the curse, while it is a response to sin, it is something a little deeper than that theologically. It is the very instrument, an act of grace that God has brought into our life to drive us back to him. And every time you experience some type of trauma or struggle, you're forced to move in one of two directions. To either drive back to the Lord or as Ecclesiastes calls, to start grasping after the wind. You know, in my last uh, position before I came here as a pastor, I was vice president of advancement at Denver Seminary. Dealt with a lot of wealthy people. And you know what I found out? All the money in the world didn't satisfy that restlessness inside. What do you tell a guy when you sit with him? He's older, retired, adult children, and he just was diagnosed of early stage of Alzheimer's. He still has a little bit of his mental faculties to talk. And he said, "Um, everything I've touched turned to gold. I'm worth $30 million. I have four children. I raise them to love the Lord, and not one of them loves the Lord. And when I die, if I don't leave them my inheritance, they're going to be really offended. But yet the Lord is the one that blessed all this. What do I do? What do you say? How do you answer that? You see, when God brings things into our life like suffering and all of that, you need to think of it as a gift to give you a decision. Some people turn to that anxiety by going after money, chasing after the wind. You know, sexual conquest, empty. Prestige, empty. Drug abuse, empty. Alcohol abuse, empty. Right? These things don't get you anywhere. They're, and the reason is because the problem of restlessness is deeper inside the soul. Okay? Been around the world, as you know, 
found no other religion, I've studied a lot of religions, that adequately answer this deep sense of restlessness that's there, except Christianity. James, toward the end of the Bible, we could trace restlessness through the Bible, but we're not going to. In James chapter, James chapter 3, he actually addresses it a little bit differently. Chapter 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue, boy, it's hard to control that, isn't it? And he goes on and describes why. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. Isn't that right? I love you, Lord. Can you believe what so-and-so did? Isn't that what happens naturally? Nancy and I have worked very hard over our marriage to help each other, to not be complainers, to actually process things that we feel and experience from others. You were here a few weeks ago when I said when I was in Cambodia dealing with 175 pastors, I asked them, what's the worst sin? They're all captured by homosexuality and what to do with it. They had no idea. I said, what's the worst sin, homosexuality or complaining? Of course, they instantly said, well, you know, homosexuality is the worst sin. Well, it is a sin. That's what the Bible says, but that's not the issue. What's the worst sin is actually complaining. They were stunned. In the great passage in Philippians 2, where it says, have this attitude which Christ Jesus had. He didn't think equality with God was worth holding on to. Okay? He became a human. He became a slave for our benefit. And he gives us the model of what it means to be a servant to one another. It's a model. And right after that, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says it right after that. Quit grumbling and complaining, he says. That's the one sin he highlights. Why? Because that's the one sin that tells the people around you you don't really trust God's sovereignty. It's no different than Adam and Eve. They wanted to be God. Oh, they were deceived, but they still ate the wrong fruit because they wanted to be God. When you start complaining, what you're saying is, I want to be God. I know better than God. Read the book of Job. Job complained relentlessly. I love it. He concludes with, where were you, God? Where are you? If you had only listened to me, you would change and repent because I'm right and you're wrong. God shows up. He shows up. If you've never read the end of Job, go read those, that last couple of chapters where he puts Job to the test. Okay? You wanted an audience with me? You got it. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Surely you know since you were there. Right? I just love that long string of questions. And Job repents, and God says, no, we're not done yet. We're not done yet, Job. Get ready for test number two. Would you really annul my judgment? This was my decision, what you went through. And Job finally repented and he said, I'm sorry. I spoke of things too wonderful for me to understand. And see, when you complain, you're just telling everybody around you that you don't really trust God's sovereignty. You really don't. And so he talks about that. The, this tongue is restless. And it's an indication of what's on the inside. The moment you start using it to hurt somebody, it reveals what's on the inside. Okay? 
You've got this innate restlessness. So look at how the world defines this concept of peace, because that's where we're going to head. How do you get from this restlessness to peace? What does that look like? What's that journey look like? Well, here's how the world defines peace. Freedom from disturbance, tranquility, that sort of thing, okay? It's a result of anxiety and boredom. If we could just get rid of all of the stuff that's causing anxiety, we'd be at peace. It's circumstantial. It's external. That's not true. If you could have all the money in the world, you still would be restless. If you could climb the corporate ladder faster than anybody else and reach the heights of success, you'd still be restless. So whatever it is you're grasping after the wind, if you accomplish it, you're still going to be restless. You see, the problem is an internal problem. It's a problem of the heart, down buried deep in the soul. So when we turn to Christianity, it has this very different nuance to it. It's the idea of completeness, soundness. It's captured by the Hebrew word, which you've all heard, shalom. The only one that can provide shalom is God. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. It cannot be found. It cannot be found in the world. It's not possible. But this concept of shalom, it has several nuances which relate to what the scriptures say about peace. Number one is that it does involve our welfare and security. Okay, a lot of passages where God takes care of us. If he's going to take care of the birds, don't you think he's going to take care of you? Jesus had a lot of teaching and parables around that very concept. We're not going to look at them because you're familiar with them. So God does take responsibility. Relax. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Remember when Elijah was exhausted and he said, there's nobody but me that follows you. And God said, why don't you go rest for a while? Lay down by the, by the brook. And the ravens fed him. And he said, uh, there's actually 7,000. You just can't see them. I know them. Relax. Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. And as you move to the Lord and you get comfortable with that imagery that he'll take care of you, you begin to say, okay, the more you can trust God, and that's a journey, the more you, like Paul, find contentment. You find shalom. But it's bigger than that. It involves the inner person. It involves this idea of contentment. It's, it's something inside that has to be wrestled through with the Lord. When I talk to people about sin, I use the definition, or I use the example of if I have a four-year-old son and I say, uh, don't run out in the street, you're going to get hurt. That's a wise thing to do. If I don't say that and he runs out in the street and gets hit by a car, I go to jail for abuse. So therefore, every time God identifies sin, you have to think of it as an example of grace. It's a gracious thing to say to my son, don't run out in the street. That's not what you're created for, to get hit by cars. Don't get drunk. You're not created for that. So when God begins to lay out the scheme of the world in which we live, the fallen, broken world, and he starts identifying things as sin, you have to learn to think of that as grace. No, you won't find happiness cheating on your spouse. You just won't. Oh, it'd be fun for a little bit. Sin is, by definition, fun or you wouldn't do it. 
but it doesn't get you to that inner peace. It creates more anxiety over time. Okay? And yet we think, we think every one of us thinks circumstantially. That's how the world defines it. If only I could invest in the right stock, I'd live at peace. If only I had to, could get this, if only I could get that, if only I could get a better spouse, if only I could get away from my spouse. In the end, never delivers. Not true peace. Not true shalom. Shalom is found only by a moving toward the Lord. That's the only place. You won't find it any place else. Don't believe the world. You know, when my uh, first wife was dying, uh, I remember meeting with my pastor and I said, I need, I need a verse, kind of like what Heather said. I need a verse to cling to. So Psalm 34:18 became my verse. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I said that every day, every day for a long period of time. And, um, and I, had, I learned to, because I memorized it and said it every day over and over again, when she died, I said, okay, Lord, I'm now alone. I need that, that nearness. I need that rest. So then life goes on, and you know, I had two small children. Nancy and I got married and had two more. So families were into the throes of family life, and little kids running around. And you know, that verse kind of disappeared into the background. Until one day I met the urologist, and he's doing a scope of my bladder, looking for something else. And he says, uh, turn on the monitor. Mr. Howard needs to see what I'm looking at. So he takes his goggles off, and up on the monitor, he points to that. He says, you see that? That's a tumor. I said, a tumor? I mean, it's like Heather said, what? What does that mean? Said He said, I won't ever forget those words. It means, my friend, you have bladder cancer. Nancy and I sat up all night, holding each other, crying, thinking through what does this mean. And that verse, I had to pull it out of the cobwebs and bring it back. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, all the, all the uh, oncology medicine in the world would not relieve the anxiety. That's why Heather's story is so powerful, moving toward the Lord. And that's what Nancy and I did. And that's where we began to find shalom. It's going to be okay. No matter what happens, it's going to be okay. And God is gracious to me. You see, true peace is what we are created for. So the world thinks of peace in, trans- in a circumstantial language, but Christianity thinks of peace in transformative language. Circumstantial is if I can control the circumstances, I'll be at peace. No, you won't. That's what I found in that role as vice president. The people with the greatest money in the world were not at rest. James has a lot to say about that wealth. In fact, honestly, it creates more unrest. That's what happens. The only place to find shalom, the only place is turning to God. Every place I've gone in the world, I have seen incredibly despicable things and people sitting at rest because they trust the Lord. Faith is greater than mine. I'm not going to lie to you. So then, what is it? How, how does it happen? So Jesus, at the end of his life, in John chapter 14 when he's kind of at the Last Supper, the Last Supper is his last supper, 
on earth. So he's at the end of a life before he's executed. He has some words to, of wisdom to the disciples because they're about to experience that aloneness. He knows he's about to die and they're going to, they're gonna, we saw last week, they're going to become restless. What did Peter say? I'm going fishing. He doesn't know what to do. He knows that. And so he gives them just a glimpse, a kernel of what this looks like. In John 14, verse 26. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace, shalom. Peace I leave with you. My peace, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. It's one of the last things he said. He's giving us a peace that's very different than the world. The peace that the world thinks is the absence of stuff that's going to make us unhappy. But the peace that God gives is an inner transformation of the heart. And it doesn't happen like that. It takes time walking with the Lord to experience it. And then just before that, he says a very enigmatic, a passage that that has caught my attention for close to 30 years now. Earlier in John 14, verse 21, I've got it memorized. It says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. So obedience is tied to love, okay? That's why I can say other places, and that final day, and some are going to say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? He's going to wait for, wait for me. I never knew you. I never had a relationship. Here's the definition of a relationship. Right here. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, this is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them, and I will show myself to them. Okay, it's that last phrase that has captured my, my attention and study and Meditation for almost 30 years. I will show myself to him. You really want to experience Jesus? You really want to experience shalom, peace? Then you have to obey. There's no shortcut. Don't listen to the world. It's not true. How does it work? Well, many of you have been around, probably all of you have been around somebody who's kind of hard and callous, not, very, not a forgiving person. They're kind of cold, aren't they? They're not very fun. And you start forgiving people. Why? Because they repent? No. 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 Forgiveness is about your own well-being, not theirs. You forgive somebody because they have dignity. They're made in the image of God. So Paul says at the end of Ephesians 4, forgive one another because they repent. No, that's not what he says. Forgive one another because God in Christ has already forgiven you. Oh, it's easy to forgive somebody that apologizes. But when somebody stabs you in the back and they're mean and they're angry and they're not willing to repent, that's really hard to do. That's really hard to forgive that person. To make a commitment for life, not to hold it against them, not to penalize them. And when you've done that enough times and you forgive people that are hurting you and they're not turning, they're not repenting, there comes a point in time where your gaze goes to the Lord and you say, what is that what it was like to forgive me? Yeah, that's what it was like. 
Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus and Stephen, when he was being stoned. Paul, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Forgive them. Not because they repent, but because they're made in the image of God. <coughs> That's why you forgive. And so as you begin to forgive, you begin to experience and, and see Jesus in a way that you have never thought possible before. Because that's when you realize to forgive you cost him his life. That's how hard it was. If you were the only one, it would have cost him his life. That's how hard forgiveness is. And when you practice this loving one another, not because they're, they, not because they're lovable, but because they are made in the image of God. And you learn how hard it is to love, to be generous and not be afraid, to give. This requires discipline on a daily basis to live out these commands. And these are the commands that he defines as love. If you truly love me, you will obey. That's when you'll find peace. That's it. So the question I have for you is, What's in the way of you drawing near to the Lord? We call that surrender. What's in the way of surrendering yourself? What is it? To really trust the Lord when he says, do not be afraid. I've not counted that, that number of times that command occurs, but I read the other day by somebody who has, says it occurs 365 times in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Second most common command. So what's, what's in the way? What is it? Is it your pride? Something you're grasping after? One of the things all these wealthy people learned at the end of life, didn't matter. If they could do it all over again, I asked that question many times, they would do it very different. Money didn't mean anything. At the, end, the success of prestige didn't mean anything. It really didn't. So what's in the way of you turning to the Lord and moving closer? I can't answer the question, only you can. Father, help us, Lord, to move from that restlessness to begin to experience true shalom where we learn to trust you in the deepest parts of our heart. That's hard to do, Lord. And yet you sent your Holy Spirit to comfort us and teach us and guide us and walk with us so we're never alone. Help us, Lord, as a church, especially during this Advent season, to just pause, turn to you, and say, help me. As the Father said in John, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Because, Lord, we desire to draw closer to you. We desire, Lord, to taste that shalom to get rid of that restlessness that we feel often. Thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.